What is going on at the Stables Theatre? My entire career has been an act of contrary revenge. <laughs> Chris New had just three ambitions in acting. To appear in the West End, to appear at the RSC, and to appear at the National Theatre. He'd done all three within a year of leaving Radha. And to put the icing on the cake, he was up for an Evening Standard Award too. Looking back, Chris now knows that when he left drama school, he was a hot property. But at the time, all that went over his head. Since graduating from drama school, his career has had its highs, and he concedes that it's had its lows. While theatrical success has underpinned his career and remains his first love, he can also point to a successful body of work on TV and in film that includes the commercially and critically acclaimed Weekend. Then a couple of years ago, Chris stepped back from his job as an actor and made some huge and significant discoveries about himself, which he says has helped him understand who he is and how he functions. I haven't been at war with the world, I've been at war with myself, he says of his life so far. For 2023, Chris is running a series of actors' workshops at the stables. He loves teaching. I rarely find that someone is a bad actor. You just need to encourage them in the right way, he tells Stuart Bailey in this interview. At the stables, he will also be staging a trilogy of plays that he's in the process of writing, that in 2024 he plans to take on tour. A fascinating character with a wealth of knowledge and experience, here's what Chris told Stuart about his life and his career so far when they met for a chat at the end of last year. Chris, you're going to be doing some work at Stables next year. You have some plays coming up. Um, you're doing some workshops. Um, but going back to the very beginning, I mean, where and how did your career start? Um, the short answer is that someone told me that I couldn't be an actor, uh, a career development person at my school. And as soon as I said that, they, as soon as they said that, I um, determined that I was going to be an actor. So um, it's it. My entire career has been an act of contrary revenge. Really, <laughs> it's quite the usual story. Good teachers, encouraging teachers, who saw something in me. Um, not very good at other things, so a lack of opportunity elsewhere, which you know narrows your choices quite quickly. Was your school into performing arts? Or did you get encouragement from there or inspiration from there? There was some. It wasn't a huge amount, but there was some. And the, my teacher pushed for, for things to happen. Both of the teacher, the good teachers I had pushed for slightly more serious things than you could expect. Like we did The Crucible when I was about 12. Ooh. Yeah, which is a strange play yes. to do at that age. And then I was doing... And then my second good teacher got me to do Samuel Beckett when I was 16. He got me to do Crap's Last Tape which is a play for a 65-year-old man. Um, and both, like, when I read Beckett for the first time, it just blew my mind away. They were hugely formative experiences, both of those. Um, did you understand at the time that you did them, or when you first read them, just how significant the, those pieces were? No. When it came to the Beckett play, I didn't understand it at all when I read it. And my teacher actually sat me down and taught me how to read a play, how to actually listen to the play properly and not just impose your thinking on it. 
he taught me how to read a play like it's a music score. You know, that all the clues are in there. You, you, you attend to the text as closely as possible, and that will bring you, that will guide you. Like, the text is the guide. That teacher, I believe, taught me how to act. Like when I went, I went to RADA, and you go to RADA. They don't teach you how to act at RADA. They teach you how to expand your career and do all the other things, speak and move and all that. The idea of how to act, you you have to have that already. And I believe that he taught me that. And actually, he came to see me in the West End years later, and I I took him for a drink afterwards, and I said, you know, you're the one who taught me how to act. And he was quite, I think, he was quite shocked at that. A couple of evenings that we spent together rehearsing this play had had such a massive effect on me. So really quite pivotal. Yeah, hugely, hugely pivotal. And he really, I think he felt, he grew up, he worked in the rep companies in the 60s, 70s, and kind of had a low-level career and always had ambitions to do more, but it just didn't work out and he became a historian and a teacher. So I think he was quite thrilled that his knowledge had gone into someone else and, a, and the career had emerged there. I think that was quite special for him. And it certainly set me in, a, in good stead. So you've had influential teacher at school. You've got to the end of your school career. Um, what was the next step? Performing arts at college? or I did college and then I kind of, I kind of was a bit of a theatre geek. I kind of read up on everything. I just read everything, um, all about the the old theorists, you know, Stanislavski and Antonin Arto and Edward Gordon Craig and Bertolt Brecht. And then I read all the plays I could find. And I went to a college where we actually did a different play every week. So it was run like a rep company. So we were working on maybe three or four plays at the same time. And they also encouraged us to put on our own plays. So we put on productions of like The Wizard of Oz, and odd Edward Bond plays and Joe Autumn plays and we just, just just did loads of stuff. During that time I actually dropped everything else. I dropped all my other subjects and officially I wasn't meant to be able to stay at the college because I wasn't doing <laughs> enough I wasn't doing enough hours, um, official hours on subjects, but my teacher somehow just told the college to leave me alone. And presumably you were putting in those hours in terms of rehearsal. Oh yeah, I was in the yeah, I was in the drama department at twelve hours a day. So somehow he protected me from all my responsibilities as a student. But that, I mean, that sounds like being really thrown in at the deep end. You do having rehearsing and reading and preparing multiple plays at the time. That's surely, in many ways, what you do in the early stages of an acting career, is it? Yeah, I suppose he was moving that rep company system. He was kind of copying and pasting the experience he'd had in a rep company into the college. And so he was running it in a very peculiar way educationally. Um, and he'd get us to do everything. We'd do the lights, the set, the costume. We'd do everything. Like I'd be up a ladder hanging lights. The first job I did in London, I actually um, was acting in it. And they didn't have a lighting designer. And I went, I'll do it. And they went, yeah, but it's, we've got nothing. We've got no rig or anything. Like, we've just got a cable coming out the wall where that is the power. And I went, yeah, that's fine. I know what to do. And I did it. I built an entire lighting rig and programmed it and did built, programmed the whole show, lit the whole show. And it's all because I just 
Chris Scott, who was the teacher, he just taught me to just do it, just get on with it, find the answer. And you'd been an absolute sponge for the knowledge. Yeah, and, and also he'd always always given that atmosphere which was, you can't, there's no reason why you can't do it, you just have to find out how. You just don't know how to do it yet. It doesn't mean you can't do it. I suppose as well it gives you an understanding of the technical aspects of, of not yeah. just what you as a performer are doing, but the influence of the lighting, the influence of the sound, the, the, the influence of all of those, that infrastructure around you. Yeah, so I'd go, I'd start reading plays and imagining how to build the set and what props you need and like the practicalities of plays. And it just, yeah, it just, and we all just mucked in. Everybody mucked in to do everything. He even let us do things like just, like I used to sleep at the college sometimes and work into the night building sets. I wasn't meant to. And the secu- I'd have to hide from the security guards. But I'd stay in there all night and just paint and rig lights and fiddle around. It was crazy. Must be quite sad for that kind of life to come to an end. You obviously immersed yourself in that totally. Yeah, when you get to the point where, you know, all the rules and regulations and health and safety kicks in, then it gets really boring. Because <laughs> we, li- we were doing very dangerous things. We were building giant scaffold towers to put lights up. He was just like, yeah, go for it. Like, why not? And were you performing these plays to an audience or was it a college audience or did you sell tickets more widely? Had- um, we tried to sell tickets more widely. You know, you wouldn't have many people, but... It was never about that. The only time we got a really big audience was when we did, I produced The Wizard of Oz, and we got loads of school kids to play the munchkins, and we made an absolute fortune. As all the parents survived. Yeah, every member of the extended family came to see the kids play munchkins, and we made a fortune. Well, a fortune for us. Relatively Yeah, and we were sold out, which had never happened, you know. So was the move from college straight to Vada, or did you... Was there anything in between? No, I had quite a bumpy ride. Because I was such a theatre geek, I met this actor who was doing a play about Antoninato in East London, in a factory in East London. And it turned out I knew more about Antoninato than everybody else in the cast, so including the guy who'd written the play. So he said, you should come to London and chat with us. And I got there and I met the cast and they were doing a reading of the play. And um, I think Christopher Chaplin was meant to be in the play. And he'd dropped out of the play that day. And they asked me to read in the part, just to read in as a body for this reading of the play. So I did that. And then they offered me the part. And I was like, oh, okay." So then the next day I moved to London, um, lived in the factory in Spitalfields. And we just, we did, it was the same thing. We just made the play. I built this, we helped build the set, we just all mucked in, the factory was derelict, we turned it into a bar and a, a theatre space upstairs, we all lived on the top floor, cooked together, got drunk together, um, then we started this play and it was a massive hit, it got like Critics' Choice and Time Out, which in those days was like the golden ticket, in 1999 this was, Tracy Emin came, Damien Hirst came, we were on the edge of like Someone said, what, how, what did you think of the play, Tracy? And she went, well, it's all about me, you know, which is a typical yeah. narcissistic answer from Tracy. I mean, um, Jay Joplin came because the producer was like in with all this um, young YBA crowd of artists. So loads of these artists came. And um, the producer also did a thing of making it really hard to get a ticket. 
So you'd leave a message on the phone and you wouldn't know if you'd got one or not and they'd never confirm and then you wouldn't be able to find the venue and the producer would stand outside the door and they'd go, is this the venue? And he'd go, I don't know. And he'd just make it so difficult that people were like, I think people were just relieved that they made it to the theatre. So that was a very odd thing. But must, again, at that, that sort of age, the age you must have been then, that must have been having those names and those sort of people coming to, to watch what you were doing must have been almost surreal. Yeah, it was very, very odd. Um, but the good thing about it was it was just really busy, you know, when you just kind of unthinkingly engage in something. It was just, you just really dived in. There was a, ba a bad side to it, obviously, like everybody got drunk and all these egos and people fighting and all that so that was quite ugly to see like the reality of like London and how harsh London can be but um but yeah that was a good encouraging start then then I went to the Bristol Vic Theatre School but absolutely hated it just thought it was just it was so wrong for me and so at the beginning of the second term I just left um and I used my student loan to run off to New York for a year <laughs> As you do. Yeah, and I went to live it. I had an affair with someone in New York. And um, for for basically a year, I flew back and forth. I just spent three months there, came back, got my visa renewed, came back. And just forgot about life for a while. Because at that point, I was thinking, oh, this is just not for me. I've made a terrible mistake. I thought that the experience at Bristol was was the experience of the industry. The, the, the real industry. Yeah, and, and that I was obviously just not made for it. Um, but then eventually I came back and I moved to London and then I thought, right, I'll give it another go. So, so you weren't working in theatre in New York? You weren't sort of no, I was off just, Broadway or anything like that? I was like just that. walking around New York just being, being a tourist. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I was just living a kind of dropout life but in New York yeah. just <laughs> which is mad, which is crazy because New York is such New York is not a place you can be a dropout it's so expensive and so but then I thought okay maybe it's not the industry maybe it's just that school and maybe I should give it another go give drama school another go so I thought well I'll audition and I'll see if I get in anywhere and you know when you do all auditions for drama school you'll probably do about 10 maybe five to ten different schools, cast your net wide, see what you get into. I'd never applied for RADA because I just presumed I wouldn't get in. I thought it was a school for posh people and rich people or the, or the children of actors. But that, at the point at which I decided to reapply for drama schools, RADA was the only one open because was, it was late in the year. So I thought, I'll do the RADA audition, that'll get me back into it, and then next year, I won't get in, obviously, and then next year I'll do all the, all the schools and see what happens. And then I just got into RADA on the first attempt, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, which was a shock, because RADA was completely not what I imagined. Mm -hmm. It was the absolute opposite. I imagined, you know, snooty people. You know, in Billy Elliot, when he goes and shit, there's that snooty woman on the desk and she's like looking him up and down. And yes, in here. You, you don't know. fit here. Yeah, exactly. This is a posh school because it's royal, you know, and all that. And when I got, when you get to Rada in those days, there was a receptionist called Val and she was like proper East End. Are oh, you darling? Don't be nervous. Where have you come from? All right, sit here. You're going to be fine. You're going to do great. And she was the total opposite of what, 
of what the whole facade, the whole stereotypical facade of what I thought Rada was just collapsed as soon as I walked through the front door. And I can imagine just makes you settle down, make the, the, yeah. calm the nerves. Well, and I think because it was Rada, I was like, well, I'm not going to get in, so I might as well just be, be me. And that oddly worked, and I didn't understand why. Because I, I had a lot of problems at that time. I needed a lot of help. I didn't have a family, and um, a lot of my life was in huge disarray. Mm. And I said in the audition, I was like, you know, I need some help. I haven't got money to come here. I need probably need therapy. I don't have any family background. And they went, okay. And they were like, fine. <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy. As to the creative tapestry. <laughs> yeah, and the odd thing was, well, the good thing was that at that time at RADA, they had an unspoken rule which was, if they thought you were good enough to go to RADA, they wouldn't let any extraneous circumstances get in the way of you attending. So money or kind of, you know, the practical circumstances, they'd find a way to fix it. It doesn't mean you'd live the life of luxury. Like, I was poor for all, all three years of RADA. You know, I couldn't really socialise because I had no money. I had to work all the way through it, which was fine. I didn't mind that at all because it, it was for it paid off and I knew it would pay off. When you're in, you're a member of the family and that's it, they won't let you go. They won't let you drop out, they won't let you fail. They'll stick with you. And so for the first year, I was just a mess. I couldn't get up in time. I couldn't get into school on time. I was like, I didn't understand what was going on with myself. There was a lot of mysteries to me that I didn't understand. And they just totally stuck with me. That that kind of answers my next question because I was going to say, did at that time, did you understand you know, the support that they were providing? But looking back on it, you, you obviously can see that really clearly. Yeah, I think I think the further away from it I get, the more remarkable it it seems, and the more transformational it was, and because the training at that time was so good, I went I went in a really lucky period. It was like a golden age. Obviously, all the schools, all the drama schools rise and fall in popularity and success. You know, the school philosophies change. They get something right, something's wrong. The, the teaching staff evolves constantly. And so it's a bit of a risk of what school you go to. And if you catch it at the right time, Bristol Vic used to be a great school. And I went at the wrong time when it wasn't a great school. Whereas now, in the last 10 years or so, it's really come back again. Um, but when I was at RADA, I was really lucky that it was in an absolute golden period. Like every year, massive, massive actors were coming out of the school, like Ben Wishaw, Tom Hiddleston, Gemma Arterton, um, they, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge was in my year. Um, it was just every year was just massive hitters coming out of the school and people who would step out of the school and become massive straight away. So there was a real like... It felt like we were at Oxford or Cambridge. It had that feel to it. like On we a were, bit of a roll, on, on the crest yeah. of the wave. Yeah, but that was to do with the principal who was there, who was, he was called Nick Barter, and he was very into Japanese culture and Zen, mm -hmm. and he was very into like being very centred and uh, caring for people, and he was quite distant as, as a principal, but the, the principles that he put into the school were 
remarkable. Do you do you leave Vada with a degree, with a diploma, or do you just launch yourself on o- the... Officially you get a degree, but there was never any mention of that at the school, and you never wrote a word. We didn't have to do... Nick Barter, the principal, had designed, had gone to the government and said, you know, this, look at the training we give. In comparison to degree training, like degree courses may have eight to ten contact hours a week. We had 12 contact hours a day. And they were saying that we weren't a proper course. And so Nick went to Parliament and he lobbied to say, you know, this, we deserve the funding of... of um, degree courses and they deserve qualifications when they come out and he actually designed what was called the conservatoire of dance and drama which set the pattern for um, drama training and dance training to be properly funded and for it to be uh, classed as and for it to have a degree at the end so but all of that degree stuff happens in the background. You don't hear anything of it. The, the teachers take care of all of that. And you, it's just a pass or fail at the end. So m- moving your story on, by the time you left Vada, what sort, of, what sort of age were you? So I was slightly older. I was 23 when I left. So I was slightly older than the majority of people. Mm. Um, but I think that's that stood me well because I'd got a lot of the stuff out of my system, like moving away from home for the mm. first time drinking for the first time, being in a city for the first time. I'd done all of that, so I was a bit of a hermit at drama school. I was a bit of a monk. I, was, I, I understood that I could sacrifice three years mm-hmm. for something bigger. So when you, when you leave, how do you find work? I mean, is it finding an agent, or is it what you've done at college, what you've done at VADA, people have seen and noticed you? Yeah, so for the final year you become a public-facing acting company as a year, and you produce two plays every term. It's open to the public. Anybody can buy tickets. Um, But all the agents and the casting directors come to that. You never quite know what's going to happen and how it's going to go for you. At RADA, they tell you to be prepared for nothing to happen. You know, you're not going to work. You're not going to get an agent. You're not going to meet any casting directors. So... What are you going to do? So I was prepared for nothing. I didn't understand, because you don't really hear the chatter, I didn't understand that I was quite a hot property. I had no idea. So some agents started sniffing around, and you kind of get letters coming in, and then you have to talk to the principal about it, and you, they kind of guide you, and it's all quite careful and steady, and they don't want you to rush or get taken in. So I had quite low expectations, really. My ambition to be an actor was only to really be an actor. I didn't have any greater ambitions once I'd become an actor. I'd, I just thought, I just want to be an actor, and then that's my thing done. No visions of superstar or no, blockbuster films. I just or... thought, what is the thing that would what is the thing that would make me feel that I'd become a proper actor and I'd done it? And I thought, well, I'd want to be in the West End at the RSC and at the National. So and I used done that. Well, yeah, and then, well, oddly, I did that within the first year of leaving drama school. And then I was like, now what do I do? And not even just playing bit parts. I was playing leading roles at all of these places. And was that all down to what you'd been seen to be doing in that final year? Yeah, you don't quite understand 
what's going on, who's seeing you, who's discussing you, because you're you're not privy to those conversations. But supposedly, yeah, like I left drama school thinking, you know, all I want to do is work, so I'll take any job that comes. You know, if I could make a living at being an actor, I'll take any job that comes. But the way the industry saw me was completely different, and I didn't understand that at all. And so within three months, I was rehearsing with Alan Cumming for the West End revival of Bent, and it was just me and him playing the leading roles. And then a few months after that, I was up for Evening Standard Awards, and I was like, I didn't understand what was happening. Mm. I had no idea I was this hot, hot property. I met an actor once, and he said, oh, I saw you at an audition for a part. We were going up for the same part, and when you came out the room, I just thought, well, there's no point trying then. I thought, that's crazy. Things got very hot very quickly. Um, but I had, once I'd done the National, the ROC, and the West End, and met the reality of those things, rather than the dream of those things. I really didn't have any ambition left. I didn't know what to do, so I just went along with whatever turned up, you know. Um, and it's taken 15 years, really, for me to go, okay, what do you actually want to do? But that's about me learning who I am and what I'm interested in, really. And it's kind of become full circle, which is now I've gone back to that original mode of being which is making the plays yeah. and building the plays and that's what interests me for the last few years I've been sent scripts for plays and films and things and they just don't uh, they just don't interest me there's nothing I think oh great I'm gonna do that I want to do that no has your career been mainly in theatre have you have you done much TV or film work I did I used to job along in TV you know, like Silent Witness and Casualty, and then I did this new series, played the bad guy in the new series called New Blood that came out a couple of years ago, which all fine. I really, I really didn't have any interest in it. I don't enjoy filming. It's a very different technique to to being on stage, isn't it? Yeah, my only sensation of filming is that I'm cold and I'm tired. That's all I feel. <laughs> and waiting around. Yeah, that's all I feel for any shoot ever. I just, I just, it doesn't interest. I love watching films and TV, but making them is so dull for me. It just doesn't, there's no camaraderie among the group because everybody's in and out. You know, you do a couple of days here and there. People are working their asses off. The crew are working like, they're just, they're working so hard for such long hours. It's such a harsh business. So yeah, my my comfort zone is is the theatre. I prefer the theatre. I feel comfortable there. I feel like I'm good in the theatre. I don't feel like I'm good on TV and film. You you, you say the you 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 feel you're good in theatre, but obviously going back to those Vada days, you you didn't understand that that you didn't you were saying you didn't understand that you were such a hot property. At what stage did you make that transition to? to feel that you're good or to know that you're good or to understand how good you actually are? Um, it's only been recently, really. I, I had a very up and down career. I'd be brilliant in some things and absolutely shocking in others. And I didn't understand why. And there were so many variables that I couldn't control. And there were lots of rookie mistakes that I made about working with certain directors who were very 
who were just not for me. To, they were just not good and not conducive for me to work with well. And I didn't understand my own process. It was just a dive in and try kind of process, which created a very scattergun results so like the West End play I did was massive hit and then the play at the National I did was a big play that did really well but I was rubbish in it I was absolutely rubbish in it and I could see people kind of look at me and go but you were brilliant in the last one anyway so I had to I had a very up and down I had a very uncomfortable career for a long time but eventually what happened is um just before COVID, I was doing three plays at the RSC, and I'd done, I've done three plays before that at the RSC, three seasons before that, and um, you know, good, good plays, good parts. You get treated very well at the RSC. You get given a little cottage to live in. You live by the river. It's lovely, really nice. You know, it's an idyllic place to do plays, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it, and I thought. It's not the RSC's fault, it's your fault. You're doing the wrong thing, and you know you are, and you haven't done anything about it, and now you're getting bitter and grouchy and annoying, and you're becoming a person that you don't like because you haven't had the bravery to do what you should be doing. And I had to have that word with myself. And we were about to start doing the three plays. It was going to be a year's work, and um, then COVID struck. So I didn't have to do the plays, and I was really pleased. <laughs> Everybody else in the room was crying, saying, oh, you know, it's such a shame, this is such a... I was like, yes, thank God for that. It's an escape route. Oh, fucking... I was thrilled. And I had to sit down and go, right, what's going on? And I actually thought at the time, I think I need to stop this. This is going to... I'm going to turn into an actor who's just bitter and angry. And I'd worked with a few middle-aged male actors who were just bitter. Mm. They were just angry, bitter men. And I thought, that's a warning sign. I don't want to become like them. Because as an actor, you're so... You're treated like a child, often, you know. You're treated... As an actor, you're, you're, you're always doing other people's work, working towards other people's inspiration. And some people will thrive in that. But I've got too much of a kind of... I've got too much going on inside my head and it's it's difficult for me to park all of that for someone else's vision and project. I find it very difficult. I have to I have to really buy into the project to give it that amount of energy and that amount of time. And take some have some control over what what you're doing. Yeah, and some career. of the projects I'd done during the years I'd had a hand in producing or bringing the project to, to fruition and that, that had engaged me in a better way and made me happier but when I was just a jobbing actor I was not happy And are those the performances that you feel you were less good in? You, you, you talked a little bit earlier about you being good in one play and then the next play comes along and you, you, you didn't feel you were as good in that Was the amount of involvement you had was there a correlation between that and how much you, you you enjoyed it? No, not really. Like the success of the role was very, very difficult to for me to pin down. And what how I dealt with that is I started to teach acting because I thought I need to learn how how I actually do this. So if I try and communicate it to other people, then that will make me actually pin down what I do. So I started teaching acting at the Actors Centre in Covent Garden, which is like a kind of 
an old school church of acting really I think it's kind of become a victim of Covid now but um, for about five years I taught there regularly and that really got me to work out what was going on and it made me go through my process there were lots of mysteries about my process and about the results like things would happen when I performed like my friends wouldn't recognize me on stage and that's odd they'd say you know it's not you and I think but it is me I'm being totally me on stage and oddly the more me I'd become on stage the less they could see of me on stage so there were these kind of mysteries that I that I wanted to f to work out and f get to the root of because they they seemed to me the key elements that made me the actor that people wanted to employ. Um, so that helped a lot, but then so COVID struck, and then I thought I actually got to the point where I thought, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. This is this just isn't for me. As in lead acting altogether. Yeah, and I did. I I. Fired my agent, I stepped away, I deleted everything, stepped away, cut all ties to the industry. Um, and then I moved out of London, I moved here. Uh, that was just after the first lockdown ended. So I got out of London straight away and I was like, right, I need to live. Because as an actor, you kind of need to be in London or you used to need to be in London. And I resented London for a while. I'd, I'd lived there for 20 years and I was just bored of it. Mm. And, and I was bored of living in tiny places and sharing and always being poor, you know. And the yes, because an actor's wife is not a not a lavish one. You yeah, my bank balance has fluctuated dramatically <laughs> over the years. It's it's a bipolar financial situation. <laughs> nice way of describing yeah, it. Like that. it, it is um, giddy at sometimes and absolute depression and. Uh, darkness at other times, but again, difficult there for to achieve that 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 cash flow balance, I suppose. Yeah, very um, difficult. And also, there's a certain um, there's a certain devil may care aspect that comes into it because I wasn't fully fulfilled as an actor. I'd splash cash to make me feel better, you know, mm. when I had it, and then return again to the poverty line <laughs> you know and i just i just live in ways live in ways that made me feel better about what i was doing but yeah so i moved here and then for the last two years really i've just lived a normal life and not engaged with acting at all not engaged with any of the people i know in the acting world and i've just left myself alone and and the the biggest thing that's happened in that time when I moved here, I knew that I was a mystery to myself. I understood that I didn't understand who I was. And I didn't understand what drove me. I didn't understand why I found some things very difficult in life and other things really easy. I didn't understand why I had such a lack of interest in things that other people really cared about and an absolute interest in other things. Mm. Like, I, I used to go to award ceremonies and things and just be like, this is a waste of my life. Why am I here? Everybody else is having a lovely time. Really exciting, enjoying themselves. I was not. And I didn't understand any of this. I just didn't understand a lot. So I came here and I took a lot of time to try and work out, to sit with myself and try and work out what was going on. And the long and the short of it was that I discovered that I was autistic. 
So I discovered I got Asperger's. For the, for, for the first time? Yeah. As in, you, 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 you realised that for the first time? Yeah. The clues of it came slowly over years. The first clue was when I was in a swimming pool in Brisbane on tour with a play. And an actress said to me, do you think you're on the spectrum? And I was like, what? Because <laughs> we were just talking about life, we're getting to know each other. And she said, do you think you're on the spectrum? And I was like, no, what's that? I was almost like, you know, what does that mean? Mm. What's that? And it kind of, you know, I didn't discard the idea. I just thought, well, that's interesting. I never heard that before. And then slowly, little clues started to come into life. And eventually I actually dated someone who then revealed to me that they were autistic. Mm. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I talked to it about talked to them about it, and then slowly, 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 it started to dawn on mm. me. And then once I pinned it down, pinned the diagnosis down, I read this book by this um, by like the leading psychologist for people with Asperger's, this um, psychologist in Australia. And I read his book, which is like a manual an ex explanatory manual of Asperger's and it was like finding it was like finding the instructions to me and I was like ah oh, right okay that makes sense now I get it like this is who I am right this is why I don't like that and I don't like that and I don't like that but I do love that and I'm really good at that and I'm really good at that and suddenly my entire life was reframed absolutely everything all of the pieces of my life shifted and fell into place. My understanding of my childhood, what I was like as a child, how I was at school, how I am with people, why I find it hard, why I found the networking of the industry so difficult. But I found the work very easy. Like for me to be able to sustain an obsessive level of focus on work is easy. But for me to go to a dinner party with a load of actors is horrific. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> horrific so it's just opened up an absolute key for me the one thing that's haunted me through this whole process is what a waste it is to give up I went to RADA and I feel like I wasted that place if I give up someone else could have had that place despite the body of work you've already done yeah you still feel that way well I could walk away from the industry and be happy I did really good plays. I also did a film called Weekend, which was which went massive, and I just that was totally unexpected. It was a tiny, low budget film that we made in Nottingham over two weeks. We didn't think anybody would ever see it. We thought we'd do festivals and then go to DVD, and it went absolutely massive. And people still watch it today, and I still get messages on Instagram and things saying that they've just watched the film and they loved it and it's had a massive effect on them and so I could have walked away and been and I was prepared to walk away and be satisfied with that to, to think that's good enough anybody should be pleased with that content with that but then discovering this diagnosis has then made me say well now I understand the, the obstacle that was in front of me for all that time, the obstacle was just something in the dark that I kept hitting, and I didn't understand what it was. But now I know what it is. Um, and so, so now I think I can reframe the work I do and how I work. And now, you know, I had so much trouble socially and things for all those years that I just thought I was a bad person. 
I just thought I was a dickhead. You know, I was just not a good person because I kept upsetting people and saying the wrong thing. And, you know, I didn't seem to understand what social cues, you know, that people would, didn't want to talk about that or did want to, or I should shut up now because I've been talking too long or you should, you know, look people in the eye when you speak to them. None of that I understood. So I was constantly upsetting people or just constantly not particularly being a person that people wanted to hang out with again because there's better people over there. You know, there's just an easier alternative than hanging out with someone like me. And I tried for years and years and years to change myself. And also another thing is that I didn't like the idea that I was different. I thought that that was narcissism. And in the acting world, you're encouraged to behave as if you're different. One of my old agents said to me, don't break the illusion. And I thought, that's horrible. I don't want to be an illusion. I want to be me. And I want to be the same as other people. And I used to really, really try and dampen elements of me down and hide elements of me to try and be the same as other people. And it just destroyed me. And at that time, did you feel you weren't being true to yourself? Or is that something? Yeah, you... yeah, because I was in the autistic world that you call it masking. You, you put on a false persona to make yourself acceptable to the world around you. Um, and the more I did it, the more I had, the more I engaged with this false persona, the more of me I had to delete. So I just became a false person. Um, and that was very difficult. That must have been quite a revelation to to come to that, come to that realization at, at, at your stage in life. Yeah, I think, well, Asperger's was only isolated as a diagnosis the year I was born. So 1981 is when Asperger's was medically noted. And so when I was a kid, there was no support. Unless you were showing extreme social difficulties as an autistic person, there was no recognition and support. So I'm, I'm probably part of a bit of a lost generation of people who are now finding out my agent, like, I'm 41 now, finding out at 40 that you're autistic is turning out to be quite quite a common thing among people my age. And what you're saying, quite a liberating thing as well. Yeah, it's a shame because, you know, all these years I could have had a much easier ride with myself. I haven't really been in war with the world, but I have been in war with myself because I just didn't understand what was wrong. All of that time, I just didn't understand. So, coming up to date, mm. um, you're here, you're at the stables, and for 2023, you've got quite a bit going on. You've got a trilogy of plays coming that you're producing, um, and you're also running some actors' workshops. So, yeah. going back to that teaching thing. Yeah. I love teaching. I absolutely love teaching. And I think acting when you teach it and when you get good results out of people, it's absolute magic. It's like witchcraft. It just blows my mind every time. So I spoke to Neil here about doing some teaching and he was really interested in it. And um, we, did a, we did three weeks of kind of a taster session to try it out, meet some of the people who might want to do the classes. And it went really well. And now we're, doing, we're running longer-term projects where, which culminate in a performance on stage. So the one we're running at the minute 
beginning of February there'll be an evening performance where all the all the members of the group perform a monologue or a duologue with someone else. And the work they're doing is absolutely great. And I love turning all of my experience into practical, communicable ideas and then seeing that those work. Because really I'm also testing my own process. I'm seeing if what I'm talking about is actually true or if it's just kind of blather. And the hard thing is that no actors in the industry talk about how to act. It's a no-no, absolute verboten conversation. You would never, ever discuss process. Is that because some of them don't really understand that they're going through that process? Yeah. Yeah, no one's... I don't think anybody... Very few people want to tinker under the bonnet as an actor. Whereas I'm all for it. I will, like, I love discussing it. Is it sort of what I'm doing is right, so I'm not going to fiddle with it in case it all goes wrong? Yeah. And it's also like, um, there's a way actors behave about the process of acting, which is to say, oh, it's just silly. It's just rubbish. You know, it doesn't matter. It's just a silly thing. You know, actors are silly. You know, we're all dickheads. You know, we're all egotistical people. And it's like, well, that's true in some cases. But acting acting can be revelatory and magical. And it can do something really powerful if you do it in the right way. And there are certain actors and certain productions and certain plays that have that effect. Now, the majority of people who are at the Oscars, who are, you know, want to be movie stars, who want to... That's a different career from what I am interested in. I'm interested in being on stage in the absolute present tense and creating a moment shared with the audience that cannot be repeated. And that, to me, is theatre. Is that the difference as well between a sort of mass-produced acting and acting that you can put some time and yourself and a bit of spirit into? I mean, what you're essentially hoping to do with any play is to create create an absolute present tense in the room. That has to be the thing. You have to make a moment which everybody in the audience immediately hopes will be repeated but knows cannot be. Because then you're not competing with TV or film. We should. Theatre has to stop competing. It's a cousin of TV and film. It's not a sibling. So basically these three sessions of, act, of actors' workshops, each of those will end in a, in a, in a performance on the stable stage. So the, um, the, the current way that we run it is it runs over a couple of months and every two weeks we have a rehearsal group and there's a lot of homework everybody has to kind of everybody has to kind of engage with it at home as well as in the room it's slightly to make everybody a bit more self-sufficient obviously different people are going to be at different stages i try and tailor it so that people feel that they've traveled their journey rather than a group journey it's an individual journey for some people just learning lines and standing on a stage and speaking them vaguely intelligibly will be a massive triumph and for other people they'll want to engage in a more in a deeper way so those those classes are running really well i'm really i'm really pleased with them and some of the some of the people have absolutely brilliant brilliant talents and presumably are all amateur actors yeah uh, quite a few of the people that have come to the class are people who've been in productions here or who support the productions here 
they and they're really really good. I've I've find I rarely find that someone's a bad actor. You just need to encourage them in the right way, and and find the way to speak to them that works with their brain. And that seems quite. I seem to be quite good at that. So what's the future for Chris New then? The thing that's happening this year is I'm writing these three plays. So they're a trilogy of plays. When I was starting to kind of back out of acting, I started to write a little bit. I wrote a film. Writing films I find easy because you can just do anything. You know, you can blow things up and <laughs> go on a volcano and do, do whatever you like. You know, Green new screen's people, a great thing. Yeah, new people can just come into the scene out of nowhere. You know, you can do anything you like. Writing a play I always saw as much more difficult because a play is like a like a it's it's a densely compressed rock you know it's like under huge amount of pressure of time and space and location and character so it's a much denser creation and I wasn't sure if I could write one so a few years ago in when was it 2016 I sat down and I thought right I'll try and write a play and I'll just write anything Whatever comes out my brain, I'll just, I'll just take it. And I ended up writing a play about the plague, about a guy going into the forest during the Black Death, and he digs the grave of his lover and has a farewell to her and discusses, you know, purges himself of the memories of the relationship, the difficulties, the complexities, and the, and the premature ending, and tries to tries to find a way to move beyond it. So I wrote this play and uh, sent it to a few people and people in the industry were really favourable to it. They, they loved the language, they thought, I was, they thought I was really onto something, but they were like, it's a play about the plague. What's that got to do with us? <laughs> and so I just put it in a drawer. You know, I did a reading uh, theatre for one lunchtime or something and that was it. And I thought, right, I'll write something else now. And then obviously the plague happened <laughs> Uh, the new plague. The, yeah, the latest plague happened. And so everybody was like, oh, your, your plague didn't... Obviously, I didn't predict it. But, I mean, I don't know. There might be something in the air. You never quite know as a writer what you're picking up on. It is a mysterious thing. I then tried that play out last summer. Uh, just a friend's small theatre festival in Deptford. And I just did, I just thought, I'll try it for three nights and just just feel into it a bit and see if it works as a, as a piece. So I did that, and it went really well. And I felt like the performance that I gave was received in the way I hoped it would be received. And so it kind of ticked all the boxes. And then I started, that's, that's the same point when I started to understand that I was autistic and that was, that started to open up a kind of, understanding of myself and a forgiveness of my past and who I'd been and then I started to move to look to think right so that's my past this is who I am now in the present so what am I going to do in the future and then I started to think well I don't want to just be a jobbing actor again that's that makes me unhappy I'm not really interested it doesn't get me out of bed every day but writing plays creating plays that does get me out of bed every day so I've set myself this task of writing three, a trilogy of plays. The first play will be that play, Dig, which we've, I've produced before. And then I'm writing the second one now. 
and then the third one will be a two-hander, which will be a conclusion of the trilogy. The first dig's going to be on in February, the second play will be on in May, I believe, and then the third play in October. And the good thing is that I, I can try the plays out here in a very kind of rough, early stage. And the one thing I really enjoy about here is that I can speak to the audience afterwards and find out what they thought of it. Because just asking simple questions of an audience teaches you a huge amount. Like, what happened in the play? Because <laughs> sometimes... Have you been paying attention? Yeah, well, sometimes you think you're telling one story and the audience are getting a completely different one. Like, so, for example, when I first did Dig, people thought he'd killed the girl. So I thought, okay, that's a big mistake. I need to make sure that's not, that's not the case. You know, and you, you learn a lot very quickly when you share work with the audience. The plays are very strange creatures. They're like Beckett plays. They're slightly strange, strange comedy in them. They're quite pagan, which is quite nice for this town. You could imagine performing them at Jack and the Green. Uh, they've got all of these kind of interesting elements that are being fed in. A lot of the play is written from my subconscious. I write from a kind of meditative subconscious way because I find that that's where the writing actually happens. So the play kind of comes out in its own form and I don't really control it. And then what happens is you, afterwards I start to work out what the play really means and I find that the meaning of the play it's a bit like a dream. It's much more complex than I understood when I wrote it down. So they're, they're pretty interesting pieces. And that will take you through 23. Yeah, that's going to take all year. And then hopefully the year after that, I'm going to take all of those plays on tour. But that's, that's, got, a different, that's got a different edge to it. But going back to early on in our conversation when you were, you were talking about your days at college and doing the lighting rigs and doing the sound, it sounds like with what you're doing now, it's you're writing and you are controlling and understanding or have the ability to control and understand really all elements. You said earlier when you write, you start to see how it's going to be lit and how it's going to be presented and how the set's going to look. Yeah. You now have the, the ability to influence that. Yeah, like I think all through my career I've been edging toward wanting to do that. But it's only now at this age that I've actually got anything to say in plays. Like I think there's a lot of um, emphasis in the theatre world about young writers. And I think that's a mistake. I think we should employ old writers. Because they understand the layers of meaning in life and the complexities of things much better. And older voices should be listened to. They've, they've got a huge amount of worth. So I think all of those years I was frustrated and hoped to create something, but I just didn't have anything to write about. I didn't have anything... I didn't have enough in... I didn't have enough in my armoury to actually create full-length plays. Yes, you have to have the lived experience to be able to write. write, write. Yeah, because otherwise you're just kind of... You're just magpieing from around you, but this these plays don't do that. They're not like they come out in ways that I don't understand, which is very very strange. <laughs> which seems a good place to end this. Yeah. 
You can now find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Stables Theatre Hastings. Then if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. And that way you'll be helping other people find our growing catalogue of podcasts. Thank you.